Hello and welcome to Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast, a podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Hannah. And I'm Amy. And thank you for joining us for our latest episode. In this episode, we will be talking about cycling from Land's End to John O'Groats with Cicerone author Richard Barrett. Richard's new guidebook to this iconic end-to-end cycle route publishes in May 2021 and is available for pre-order on the Cicerone website. Providing a route of over 1,000 miles, which is 1,600 kilometres, this guidebook offers a main 14-day schedule of roughly 70 miles per day, alongside schedules for 10, 12, 16 and 18 days. Land's End to John O'Groats is a route that showcases some of Britain's best cycling as it travels through a diverse range of landscapes, from the Somerset levels to the magnificent Cairngorm Mountains, and is a brilliant challenge for long-distance cyclists. As a route that requires lots of planning, we're going to talk to Richard about the practicalities of cycling the jog, covering accommodation, direction of travel, and how to tailor the experience to your own needs. If you want to find out more about cycling Land's End to John O'Groats, head over to the Cicerone website where you can get 25% off the guidebook. Use the discount code LEJOG25 at the checkout. L-E-J-O-G-2-5, LEJOG25. That discount will apply both to the pre-order and once the guidebook is published. We hope you're inspired by listening to Richard and decide to plan your own Land's End to John O'Groats adventure. After years of road running wreaked havoc with his knees, Richard Barrett returned to long-distance cycling in his 50s when he bought himself a classic British-made touring bike. Now in his 60s, he rides a handmade bike from one of the great British frame makers that have appeared in recent years. Combined with walking, cycling allows him to continue his love affair with the more mountainous parts of the UK, which he first visited as a teenager. He spent his career in marketing in multinational organisations in the UK and abroad, but he now lives in West Cheshire and, if he's not touring, rides two or three times a week with local Cycling UK groups. Welcome, Richard. Hello, Anna. Hello, Amy. Land's End to John O'Groats is a classic cycle ride in Britain and is one that many cyclists aspire to. When did you first come across it and what is it about the route that captured your attention? I guess I've known about Land's End to John O'Groats for my entire life because I'm a child of the 50s. And sometime in the 60s, there was an absolute plethora of people who were walking it nonstop. And it was all over the national media. And it was kind of making national news as so no one had ever walked that far before, which, you know, there's loads of people that spent their lifetime doing huge distances. But it was in the national media. So I've known about it my entire life. So when um, Jonathan and Joe at Cicerone got in contact with me and said, would you like to do a new Lands into John O'Groats book? I was like, mm, it's a big challenge for me. I thought, yeah, I'm up for that. I'll give it my best. And it was a nice project to take on. So what about the, the distance of it and, and the route itself? There's no official route for, for the jog, but whichever way you go, you're doing at least 874 miles. So yeah. the thousand mile route in, in your guidebook is described as the safest, optimal route. So why did you decide on the route that you have? Well, we needed to be concerned for people's safety. You do still come across people who are anxious to do their very best performance and those type of folk will stick to the A roads Um, and they're not very safe a lot of them these days with fast moving traffic so we were kind of 
anxious to provide a route that made the most of good cycle paths and bits of, of fast off-road trail and those types of things. Without taking too much time and wandering around too much, we didn't want to go too far off the best line and we didn't want to make it so it wasn't something that could be done by most people within a fortnight because most people are still pretty time poor. They've got families, they've got partners, they've got jobs. They can't spend too much time. You know, they, they want to do this, but they've only got a fortnight. So you've got to package something for them that they can do within like 12, 14 days of riding, knowing that they've also got to get to work the following Monday. And it is achievable for most riders. If you can ride 65, 70 miles a day, and the most critical thing is do it day after day for 13, 14 days. It's here for you, and, and it is literally a 1,000 miles. We won't take you way off the beaten track. We could have made it shorter. I think I had one iteration down to about 970 miles, and we agreed, no, you don't want to do 970 miles. You don't want to go back to work on the Monday. And they said, did you do your ride? Yeah. How many miles did you do? 973. There's no Strava challenge for 970 miles, is there? No, no. You want to have something big, audacious go. You want to say, I did a thousand miles. That's what you want to say. So that's what we did. As you say, there's various alternatives for people who want to go faster. And we go up to 18 days for people who want to take longer. And you can cycle this in either direction. And we've provided downloadable GPX files, both for the jog south to north and for joggle north to south. They can download them off the Cicerone website and they can upload them into whatever planning app, route planning app they desire. We've done the guidebook, so it's Land's End to John O'Groats, and apparently that is the best way to do it. I assume that that was because your legs will get used to cycling by the time you reach the Cairngorms, which I assumed would be the biggest hills. But actually, I was surprised to read that it's actually the hills in Devon and Cornwall that are steeper. Most people do it south to north because, if anything, you've got the prevailing wind behind you from the southwest, although you undoubtedly get winds from the north, as we've had in the last week or two. You're also getting the more dramatic scenery and a more iconic scenery when you get further north into Scotland, particularly up through the Cairngorms. But the southern end is actually probably the hardest in that, if you know Devon and Cornwall, there's lots of rivers running from the centre of those counties down to the sea. So you're constantly crossing these little streams and rivers, which means losing height, getting down into some green leafy dell and then having to climb out them. And literally through East Cornwall and most of Devon, that's the type of riding you're encountering. So you're doing an awful lot of up and down on what are quite short, sharp hills. By the time you get to the Cairngorms, they're long hills, they're, they're very gentle hills, at, you know, 3 4%. Even going up the Pass of Dromocta, where you get to about 1,500 foot above sea level, it's almost unnoticeable. It's about 3%. It goes on for 20 miles nearly, but it's 3%. So you don't really notice what you're doing there. Whereas in Cornwall, they are sapping days. And apparently most people, if they're going to drop out, 
drop out on day three because they've gone at it too fiercely and absolutely exhausted themselves in Devon and Cornwall. So within the guidebook, we're very, very cautious about those first few days. And I do encourage people not to try and up their pace. Those first few days down in Devon and Cornwall are pretty typical that you need to take easy. And then the last days when you're in the Cairngorms, pretty easy and up through the north of Scotland, knowing that you need to conserve a bit of energy for getting to the very end. There's a lot in your guidebook about tailoring the route and the Lajog experience to a cyclist's individual needs, whether that's taking a detour to visit family and friends or a particular landmark. So do you think that a lot of cyclists do deviate from this kind of typical through line on the jog? I think most people probably stick to it. But, you know, you have to deviate anyway because you're going to have to go off route probably because you can't get accommodation immediately on the route. So you might find yourself going off to get to your overnight accommodation, your B&B or your campsite, because certainly in southern England, there's not a lot of campsites. So I think people will wander on and off the route and get back on it the following day. But certainly, if you have got family and friends on route, or there is something you want to include, little bits of the Lake District, because we, if anything, go through on the right-hand side of the Lake District, just to the right of Shap and go through Shap. But if some people think, all oh, right, I want to go over the Hard Knock Pass or something like that. Yeah, go over the Hard Knock Pass if, if you want to tick that off as well. It doesn't actually add, you know, a huge amount of extra mileage. So do it by all means if that's going to take you win. You mentioned camping and there's options for B&Bs and hostels or hotels. What would you recommend? I'm nearly 70, Hannah. Uh, believe it or not. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I enjoy riding my bike. I don't want to go along like a juggernaut with camping gear on and camping stove. And at the end of the day, have to kind of put a tent up and risk getting soaked in the middle of the night. Um, so I'm not a big fan. I can understand people liking camping in the, they don't have to get anywhere particular at the end of the day. They can just chuck the tent up when they feel tired and, and settle down for the night. I much prefer hostelling. There's some great hostels, particularly independent hostels now, which are extremely good. Uh, and then there's the budget hotels which most of them appear to let you take your bike into the room or will find you a room somewhere downstairs, like their laundry room where you can keep it. Recently, in the middle of this year, you could actually get a room at some budget hotels cheaper than you could get a room in a youth hostel. So there's lots of very cheap alternatives if that's what you want. And I also prefer to eat out remarkably well and live large at the end of the day. So a hot shower, a really nice meal and a, and a decent red. I don't want all this rough stuff camping anymore. You've been there and done that. Done that once in this lifetime and had some horrendous experiences. Do you think it's worth using a courier service for your bags or having a support vehicle for the jog? The big challenge of the jog is the logistics. You really need to get your logistics well worked out. There are, as far as I'm aware, no couriers who will carry bags for you. There's nobody does that. It'd be absolute logistic nightmare. So if you don't want to carry your own luggage, get a mate or alternatively 
go on a package tour. It costs you a fair amount of money, but there you'll have all the backup and a mechanic as well. So it's a total package tour done for you, and that may be something to consider. Having said that, there are a couple of bike shops in Penzance and also in Wick and also in Thurso at either end who will carry your bikes for you. They will unpack it, assemble it out of a out of a transit box and get it to you. And at the other end, they'll take it down, put it in a bike box and send it back to you on a courier network. If you've got a member of the family or a friend who's happy to provide the support backup, that is by far the easiest way to do it, and indeed one of the cheapest. And they can have a good time and they can meet you during the day and brew coffees up for you and all the rest of it. If you don't have that, you're going to be reliant on public transport and getting bikes on trains, not so much in the middle of the UK, but particularly Penzance for Land's End and from Thurso or Wick. These trains are pretty well packed with cyclists and have got limited space. And you do need to make sure, particularly in the summer when most people are doing this, that you book early and you get your bike reserved on them. Otherwise, you will get bumped. And I don't blame them for bumping people because they have bikes all over the place and they've got to be pretty concerned about other passengers' safety. So you need to get in there early. The first thing you should do is make sure you've got your, your train booking and your bike reserved. And then again, because of the pressure on accommodation, there's a lot of people fighting for hostel spaces in Tong and Thurso. So if you want that type of accommodation, you do need to plan really early. It's not something you can do on a wing and a prayer and hope you're going to get a bed for the night because the chances are you aren't. So how far in advance would you recommend that people book then? I would start in midsummer. If you were planning to do it for next year, I would start booking accommodation probably June, July, August this year. I'd try and get my bike booked on trains literally as early as possible. And then you're not particularly fit at the moment. You're going to have to get some training in, but that would give you a fair amount of time to get yourself fit over the winter, knowing that in the spring you can start doing the other critical bit of the training, which is to make sure that you have the stamina to do 60, 70, 80 miles day after day after day after day, because that's the bit that saps people. You know, there's a lot of riders around who can easily knock out 70 miles a day, but having to do it day after day for 12, 14 days is a different kettle of fish. So you do need to get some short tours in, some long weekend breaks, perhaps even a week-long tour, just to know that you can do that and you're not going to crack. When I did my first cycle tour, it was only a three-day thing. But for me, I just, I learned so much about cycling when it was consecutive days. And I learned things like don't wear toe clips because they destroy your legs when you fall off your bike and they get caught on your gears and things like my pannier racks were incredibly heavy so I think there's all sorts of things you can learn from doing a few days first that hopefully makes the longer trip easier. The other thing I wish I'd had a a rest day because we did the way of the roses and we went through York and barely saw any of York and I really wish we'd had a day 
off so that we could explore York. We were concentrating on, right, we can do this in three days. That's what the book says. And we hadn't really considered an extra day. But on a two week trip, how many rest days would you recommend? Or would you think it's better for people just power through and, and keep going? I'm not a fan of rest days. If people are not careful, they kind of get off the bike one day and think, oh, that's it. I'm not doing anything tomorrow. And by the time they get to the day when they resume their cycling again after 24 hours off, they're all stiff. They find the motivation lacking and everything else. So it can be quite detrimental. I would encourage people to use the entire day when they are cycling. Build some kind of relaxation time into the day by visiting something or going shopping or, you know, lounging around for an hour and a half at lunchtime or whatever and build it into the day and take the cycling easier rather than thrashing themselves to bits and then thinking a rest day will help them recuperate. So I'm not a big fan of rest days. I would encourage people to keep going, but keep going and cycle easier. And you're saying about using the whole day. So I guess you want as much daylight as possible. Is summer the best time to do this? You don't need to be cycling much after four o'clock, five o'clock. Most B&Bs and indeed most hostels don't want to see you before five o'clock at night. So time the day to arrive when they open. So if you're riding from eight o'clock in the morning till five o'clock at night that's nine hours you've got for doing 65 70 miles it's quite generous time allowance there so you can afford to take your time enjoy it you know enjoy yourself go have a nice meal have a nice light lunch go sightseeing at Culloden Battlefield or whatever takes you fancy. Go to the museum in Inverness if you're interested in Highland life. And, you know, go on a fishing trip, go on a wildlife watching trip or whatever. But use the day. Do use the day and don't rush it. You know, nine or ten hours to do 70 miles. It ain't a challenge for a fit cyclist, particularly once you're out of those hard bits down south. You can easily find that you've done the riding by two o'clock or three o'clock. A lot of people will, you know, a lot of fit riders will amble along at 14 and 15 miles an hour and get through there really fast. So you can tick up the miles, you know. The record for Lands into John O'Groats is something like, you know, less than 48 hours now. It's been less than two days for quite a long time. Wow. Do it in a weekend. People do. People do do it in a weekend. If anyone listening has done it in a weekend, do let us know. We'd love to hear from you. So people do it in two days and you're taking two weeks. So do enjoy yourself. You know, you get up relatively early in the morning when you're out cycle touring and you can be on the road by 7.30 and you don't want to get there in the middle of the afternoon. You know, take eight hours, nine hours have some good breaks, have a first breakfast, a second breakfast, a mid-morning coffee, whatever, afternoon, mid-afternoon tea and clotted cream cake, whatever takes you fancy. But use the entire day and just ride it at a very easy cadence. I learned on my first cycle tour the error, the massive error of not having second breakfast and then <laughs> being so hungry at lunchtime that I had beans and cheese on toast, two big slabs of toast. And then we had an enormous hill straight after lunch that I ended up having to walk up because I was still too full of beans and cheese on toast. Little and often, 
that's the rule of road cycling. Eat before you're yeah. hungry, drink before you're thirsty, but not, I, I don't even have a big breakfast, yet alone a big lunch, little and often. Eat well before you're hungry just to keep your glucose levels up right the way through the day. But I'll have four or five stops if necessary every 15, 20 miles just to keep taking energy on board to keep you going rather than have a big load and then suffer from it. Yeah, I think that is really important. You know, and don't put the hammer down and exhaust yourself and risk blowing up. And cycling up a big steep hill is just, in my experience, always harder than than walking up a big steep hill. You can walk and catch your breath, but you stop halfway up a hill on a bike and it's a nightmare to get going again. People need to make sure that they've got their gearing right for doing these, these type of things. And they almost need one-to-one gearing or better. So, you know, on the back cassette, they've got a 32 cog, a 32 sprocket, or even a 34 or something like that, um, so that they have got something that they can slowly wind uphill. And I do encourage people, if they don't know what I'm talking about, uh, go to their local bike shop, ask a mechanic to put them something easy on that will help them get up some hills. But if you, if you haven't got your bike set up for slow, steady climbing, you know, go to your bike shop and ask them to help you configure it. It'll cost you a few quid, but it will be well worth it and make life much easier whilst you're out on the road. If you look at the total amount of traffic free in the Land Centre John O'Groats, it's actually 17% of it was not on roads, either on, on shared use paths or on trails or on well-provided for well-surfaced towpaths here and there. And I remember the stretch through the Queen Elizabeth Forest just north of Aberfoyle. There's nine miles on fire tracks. I actually rode it on a titanium bike with 25C tyres on it. So basically a road bike with pretty skinny tyres. Most people ride on 25s or 28s, so pretty skinny tyres and didn't really have any problem at all. It was absolutely fine. But it'd be even better on a, and certainly more comfortable on a gravel bike. And given the fact that most gravel bikes have got very accommodating gearing on them, even a single ring gravel bike, I can see people riding Lance Entich on a a gravel bike. I would certainly consider it. I'm sure there's people thinking about riding Lance Entich on a on e-bikes, which would be, there's no no reason they couldn't do it on e-bikes. As long as they've got somewhere to charge up every night, they perhaps have to um, support the vehicle with a spare battery for them because they might flatten it during the day. You know, there's no reason you couldn't actually do it on an e-bike. So, Richard, you haven't actually cycled it all in one go because you said you prefer to do it in sections. And so I wondered if you could talk about the process of writing it. I prefer not to do huge amount of riding and then a huge amount of going home and writing it up later on. I prefer to chunk it, as I call it. So Man's Enter John O'Groats, I think, ended up being five chunks of about five days probably each a lot of it i could reach from home in chester i did a northern bit then i did a southern bit from land's end up to bristol knowing that i could cross the river and get a train straight back home to chester so i did that type of thing then came home and wrote it all up and then did the next one and had them all planned out so as yet although i've written a book on land's into john O'Groats. I ain't actually ridden Land's End to John O'Groats in one go. And we're planning to do it as a 
great fortnight up, up that way. And then I would just enjoy it like other people do. I'm not out to take photos. I'm not on a mission. I'm not working. Just enjoy it. I think there's a really nice lesson there for the users of the guidebooks as well, that, you know, the guidebook is Land's End to John O'Groats, but you can use it as a kickstart point for making your own adventure. And if you have just got, you know, four days, then picking out a, a little chunk and doing that. And actually, it can be a really flexible process. Yeah, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people who can't possibly spend 14 days away from their work and family whereas they could perhaps spend a four-day break or a five-day break. And if they're fit enough in five days, they, they could quite easily do 500, possibly 600 miles over a four or five-day break. Or, you know, the family might have a holiday in Scotland and they might take a couple of days off and do part of it that. So eventually they take it off and, and chunk it that way. Do you have a favourite section then of Le Jog? No, not really. It's like your children. You know, you're not supposed to have a favourite child, are you? And you can't have a favourite child. It's all different. I enjoyed all of it. I always enjoy all of it. It's wonderful. It really is nice. Number one, it's lovely cycling. You see bits that normally you would just whiz past on the M6 and you think, oh, I don't know what's over there. But when you get over there on a bike... It's actually a fantastic experience what you come across. And there's always something to get involved in and kind of what's that over there? And, you know, people want to know what they're looking at and why it's there and who put it there and all that type of stuff. You'll see in the book, there's loads of little notes about weird bits that take your interest. So I enjoyed all of it. And it's just the changes, you know, every day is a change and you're another 60, 70, 80 miles further north or whatever and there's different things in the bakeries. There's different types of cakes. There's occasionally different things on the menu. There's different people to talk to and all that. So every every day, no matter where you are, was enjoyable. If you think about London to John O'Groats, it's a thousand miles. If you look over the over the North Sea and the English Channel, it would start in France at the southerly end of it, and it would end up more or less in Sweden and Norway at the northern end of it. You know, you're covering that amount of territory. And it is a journey through multiple cultures over multiple types of topology and landscape. One minute you're hurtling across the Somerset levels, the next minute you're going across the Cairngorms, or finally at the end you're going through that great flow country with that expanse of emptiness. And for people who don't really know their their own country and have not really holidayed much in the more remote parts of the country, like the tip of Cornwall and the northern end or down in the southern uplands or that area, it's a great way to know the British Isles. It really is fantastic. The bits of it I would have never have dreamt of cycling through. And it was damn wonderful. It's a wonder that the, the guidebook is as slim as it is, because it sounds like there's there's so much to see along the way and so many interesting things that you could have written a, a book four times the size. Oh, easily, easily. I mean, the worst thing of writing a guidebook is when you get it on paper and then an editor comes back and says, um, can you lose 4,000 words? And you think, okay, yeah. So some of the things that you thought were interesting along the way have to take a hit, you know, and, and particularly here, because in this guidebook, there's a lot of maps, actually. And a lot of the images had to be sacrificed because we need to get a guidebook 
down to a pocketable size and a pocketable price as well. And that's what guidebook writing's all about. What's your next cycling adventure? And is it going to be Land's End to John O'Groats? I'm going to do Land's End to John O'Groats non-stop. Probably not on a too hefty schedule, probably 12, 14 days, something like that, with the gang of the people that I normally go riding with that we've not been allowed to go riding with for virtually a year now. We want to have a lot of fun and we want to have some good meals and lots of beer and lots of wine and all the rest of it. And having a bit of off-road adventure. I'm looking at things like King Alfred's Way down in Wessex or something like that or possibly going off into the kind of hinterland of mid-Wales and doing some gravel riding and some off-road bikepacking on that. John O'Groats on a gravel bike, I would certainly consider it. It sounds incredible, and I was already interested in, in doing the jog, but it really makes me want to get my bike out. Thank you so much, Richard, for talking to us. Cheers, folks. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast. Let us know what you think by leaving reviews on your podcast platform or by emailing us live at cicerone.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Visit www.cicerone.co.uk to find over a thousand articles, sign up to our newsletter or buy one of our guidebooks. You can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or on your favourite podcast provider. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, search for at Cicerone Press on Facebook and Instagram. And you can also join our Facebook community group, Cicerone Connect, to connect with other outdoor enthusiasts. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.